What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe, and we'd like to welcome you all to this week's uh, show. And thank you to everyone who supports this podcast, especially our patrons and our Bestseller Academy members, or our Academates, as we like to call, call them. If you're interested in joining the merry band of supporters of this podcast, just simply pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and get all the goodies that we have waiting for you. And if you're interested in joining the Bestseller Academy, doors are opening as of next week. So get ready to get your applications in, folks, for the new year. So, Mr. Stay, how are you doing this week, sir? Very good indeed. Very good indeed. It's uh, November's an interesting month because I think I'm doing an event every week. <laughs> November is quite busy. So uh, uh, I think I mentioned this last time, the British Library are doing this whole thing about fantasy fiction. So I'm doing, a, by the time this comes out, I'd have done a thing at Ashford Library. And then I'm doing one with Jen Williams and Alice Chow at Guildford Library. And then I'm doing a thing with Robert Rankin at Horsley Library. So yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a bonkers month. So um, is it? Is it, the, is it the rush before the Christmas uh, festivities, getting it all in before December kicks off? Possibly, yes. Yeah. yeah, and I've got some Christmas events coming up as well. Like we got a lovely little bookshop in Herne Bay called the Little Green Bookshop where we have a special Christmas shopping event and the authors come in and we sign books and there's mulled wine and cakes and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's lovely to have a little bookshop that does that. It's fantastic. Do you know, this time of year always gets me in the writing mood because something about autumn or fall as they call it over here you know it, it's a hibernation time and what i love about it is you don't have those excuses anymore of oh i've got to get out into the garden the garden's going mad everything's kind of dormant and then your your creativity can kind of come alive and i love there's nothing more than i love about being in a little space which is like toasty warm you've got your slippers on you've got your hot cup of coffee tea or coffee and then you can just have a moment to write. So I'm wondering how many people are in that in that place right now, and how many people are kind of um, going through that November madness of trying to write fifty thousand words in a month. Which <laughs> I still I still salute people that do. I think it's amazing, isn't it? But, well, we, we um, got we got someone in the academy who's writing two books at once for NaNoWriMo. So they're hoping to, I think, to do 100,000 words in the month. So, uh, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that's on. bonkers. As if, that, yeah. as if that wasn't enough to get on with, right? Know, Unbelievable stuff. Well, listen, if you, <laughs> whatever, wherever you're at with your writing this week, you know, whether you're doing, a, you're, you know, you're pushing your 200 words a day or whether you're going to try and write an entire book in a month, we wish you every success. Uh, we do hope that you look after your mental health as well because this is the other oh, part, yes. isn't it? It's like, you know, I do, I do, I do wonder for people that write 50,000 words a month, every month. And there are people out there that, that I think do do that. 
Oh, yeah, very yeah. few of them. But that's almost like kind of like a kind of ninja level training. They're like <laughs> kind of ultra marathon runners that have got to that point where that's just what they do. But for someone going from not writing at all to trying to write 50,000 words in a month, it's tough. That's a lot. That's a big undertaking. And, and yeah, I think, yeah. I think it's also the sense of, you know, December being that almost like a recovery month in some ways. Mm. Um, so yeah, if you are doing that, you know, do, do take care of your mental health, lots of sleep. Um, and, uh, yeah, just keep pushing through, keep pushing through to the end of that month. So, so Mark, yeah. let's dive in and, and, uh, find out about our incredible interview this week. Okay, we're speaking to the wonderful Fiona Valpi, who is an acclaimed number one best-selling author. Her books have sold millions of copies worldwide. She's been translated into more than 30 languages. Her latest novel is The Cypress May, set in Tuscany in the summer. It is the perfect book for these long winter nights. Uh, Fiona has a degree in geography. She's worked as an IT systems engineer. She's worked in PR and marketing in the wine industry. She's been a yoga teacher, but writing is where it all made sense for her. So we discuss how an encounter with a stranger helped inspire her latest novel, the importance of rights and how a book can have a second life, and how to evoke a location when you're unable to visit in person. Brilliant. So let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the hugely adventurous Fiona Valpi. Fiona Valpi, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm really well, thanks, Mark, and delighted to be here with you. Well, it's, it's um, wonderful to speak to you because we're here to talk about your wonderful new novel, The Cypress Maze, which has the most gorgeous. In fact, all of your novels have the most gorgeous covers. These are novels you just want to step <laughs> inside the cover, which, um, you know, I think uh, is they're so inviting. It's a dual timeline novel, 1943, yeah. 2015, which is something you've done a number of times. I'd like to talk mm -hmm. about that. But first, tell us about The Cypress Maze. Well, the Cypress Maze is set in Tuscany, um, such a beautiful part of the world. Mm. So I just knew I had to write a book set there because it would be a really good excuse to go and spend <laughs> even more time there. Um, and it is a dual timeline novel. Many of my books are dual timeline novels, as you said, and they, they're often, um, referring back to World War II. Mm -hmm. And this one is no exception to that. Um, so it follows. A set of characters during World War II in Tuscany. Um, and then we come across a more contemporary strand with um, a new character who comes in. And what she has in common with the main protagonist from the war years is that they've both been through um, a really devastating experience of loss, of bereavement, um, each in their own way. Mm -hmm. um, and so that that's the sort of um, thread that runs through that, that unifies them. Um, and so we have Beatrice Crane, who is um, who who comes to this beautiful Tuscan villa um, during the war years when she finds herself stranded in Italy, as as many um, you know people did, many foreigners did, because. Um, of Italy's position at the beginning of the war, saying that they weren't going to become part of it. Mm. But I guess the writing was on the wall with um, Mussolini in charge, yeah, yeah. being a fascist and all. Um, so, if, if, you know, lot, many people did get stranded in Italy. And so Beatrice is one of those, and she's a bit wet behind the ears. And she gets taken in um, to this beautiful villa by the, the villa's owner, an Italian woman called Francesca. And she um, is protected there. 
but she also sees the war unfurling through Francesca's eyes and through the experiences that, that occur um, during those years. Then we come forward to 2015 and Tess arrives at the villa. This has been set up by her her granny, who's an old, old friend of, of Beatrice Crane's, because yeah. Tess has recently, uh, and it, and this isn't a spoiler, it's spelt out right at the beginning, she, she loses her husband to motor neuron disease. Mm. So she's been through that terrible ordeal of um, seeing him suffer and being able to do nothing, really feeling so helpless. And then he takes the decision to go to a Swiss clinic and to end his life there. So she has experienced all of that and and is you know clearly completely devastated needs time can't make sense of life um really needs to be away from her family as well who are who are so loving and supportive and yet she feels she's having to she's having to sort of um temper her grief and and react in a certain way in order to protect them you know it's that feeling that oh yeah every, I'll say everything's fine because that's what they want to hear um, so she finds herself in this beautiful Tuscan environment and slowly, little by little, she learns Beatrice's story during the war years. And there is a, there's a secret that's been kept from those years that, um, needs to come to light or is about to come to light. And Beatrice is really terrified and agitated about this. And so Tess helps her, but through helping Beatrice, Tess also finds a way to navigate through her own, her own grief. And that's where the title, The Cypress Maze comes in. Uh, you know, it is a maze of grief that we're, that we, we have to find our way through. Mm. Um, but also there's a very beautiful garden in this villa. <laughs> so the maze is the centerpiece of that. Wonderful. I, I want to come to the beautiful garden in a minute, but when yes. when you're talking, when you're writing about something like grief, which is it, it can be emotionally draining, you know, to read, but you're having to write it and then rewrite it and rewrite it. Mm. How are you managing that? Because that can't be easy. It isn't easy, but then, as we all know, nothing much about writing is easy. It's true. <laughs> published. Um, so it isn't easy, but I I believe that it's something that's really important, um, probably all the more important nowadays, having, you know, the whole world has been through a, a global pandemic and lockdown and and all the loss that that entailed, not just loss in terms of loss of life, but it, loss in terms of losing um, a lot of our freedoms and lo- a lot of the certainties that that we thought we had in our in our world and in our life. Um and so I think it's it is something that's incredibly you know just universal. Um, so we can all relate to grief in some way mm. on some level. Um, and I think for people who have been through really devastating loss or bereavement or um, trauma, um, who are left struggling with grief. That literature can be such a help, and and that's certainly something that I've found in my life. You know, it's it's been a lifesaver in the bad times. Reach for a mm. book; uh, it's, it'll help you get through. It'll help you escape, but mm. it it can also help you get through. Um, 
And, you know, there are many, many words of wisdom in, in different books. It's just a question of finding the genre that speaks to you and finding the author that speaks to you as well. So I think that's probably why I do it. It is a challenge. It, it can be a huge challenge um, doing the research, um, mm. but also hearing people's stories. Um, and with the Cypress Maze, for example, I met this wonderful woman. Um, I was out hill walking. I was doing a, a sort of hill walking day and she happened to be on this day. And we fell into step and got chatting. And um, she said, what do you do? And I said, I write books. And she said, oh, that's very interesting. What are you writing about at the moment? And I said, well, I'm I'm planning on writing this book, which deals with motor neuron disease, because a, another friend of mine had been through that ordeal, he and his wife. And she said, well, that's a coincidence because my husband died of motor neuron disease not two years ago. And I'm still going through this, this process. You know, I'm still struggling with it. So we we were chatting. This and this is a complete stranger. And I said to her at the end, um, if you were prepared to talk about your experience as the partner of someone going through this, because that was very much, that's very much who Tess is. That's very much what I wanted to write. Um, would you be prepared to come and, and have a chat? Yeah. And she said, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And a couple of weeks later, she turned up for a cup of coffee. Um, five hours later, <laughs> the pair of us were still talking. <laughs> we got through a lot of scones and a lot of coffee. Um <laughs> And she shared with me, you know, she's incredibly generous and incredibly brave in how she shared that with me. And um, some of it was really harrowing to hear, but, um, you know, that's never as harrowing as it will have been to to actually go through it. Mm. Um, so I, I was just, uh, you know, so impressed by her her courage in doing that and, and also this generosity of spirit in doing that. Um, and I very much hope that I've I've done justice. I mean, she she gave me some tiny little details about what she went through that, that appear in my book, and only she will know that that those are there. But it's you know that's based on that real genuine experience. And at the end of it, I thanked her and I said, I really hope this hasn't been too awful for you. And she said, I've never spoken to anyone like this about it because. We're always protecting the people who are nearest to us. Yeah. So I, th you know, I think in a way, us us writers um, ha can have a role to play in that, in terms of just holding the space and listening and being a sounding board um, for other people's grief and other people's suffering, and that can be cathartic for for mm. all of us. Yeah, agreed. Wow, what extraordinary. I mean, if you think of how different the book might have been had you not met, mm -hmm. had you not had that conversation, mm -hmm. that is extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned you mentioned little details there, and I, I want to sort of port that across to talking about the gardens in Tuscany, and and because mm -hmm. the the thing that really struck me uh, is the descriptions of Tuscany completely draw the reader in, but it is those little details: wisteria yes. on a wooden pergola, mm -hmm. curving mm -hmm. beds with lavender, and you said that. It's a great excuse to go to Tuscany and take notes. So when you go there, what sort of notes are you taking? What are you looking for that you know will help evoke the the atmosphere of a place? I think I'm looking for the the, the tiny intangibles. You know, we can all look up pretty pictures on on the internet, um, and it's a 
fantastic asset for that and a fantastic resource. But it, it's what does it smell like? What does it sound like? How do I feel being here? Because if I can communicate that to the reader, then they can transport themselves here. Mm-hmm. So it is all those, in, in, uh, you know, tiny little details that that we would. Um, I, I, I'm sure I started looking at the world in a different way once I became a writer because I was I was looking and taking in tiny details far more. Yeah. Whereas before, you know, I would look and I would say, "Oh, that's a beautiful garden," but as a writer, you're thinking, "How do I, how do I tell my reader yeah. that, and how do I help them to to be here?" Um, and it is those tiny little details that that you um, that you look for. I, I gave myself a huge challenge. I'm I'm always very um, snooty about people who don't actually visit the place and do their research because I say, well, how can you? How can you know what it smells like, sounds like, tastes like if you're not there? Um, so I would always say, oh no, I would I would you know I go to the ends of the earth to do my research if need be. Um, and during uh, well, it, at the beginning of 2020, I decided yeah. I was going to write this book set in Casablanca. I know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> in Morocco, where I've never been. Yeah. yeah, I know quite a lot about France. I'd lived there for a long time. But this, my next book, I was going to Casablanca. I was going to Morocco. I was going to write the storyteller of Casablanca. Um, lockdown happened. I, I had three different research trips set up. I did my oh. best. But each time, they were either kicked down the road or finally completely cancelled. So I really had to eat my words and I had to find other ways of doing that research. Um, Fortunately, I've spoken to so many Moroccan people. And in fact, I even managed to get to Morocco earlier this year at last. Um, And there were so many lovely Moroccan people who said, we've read your book, we cannot believe that you didn't actually get here because you've nailed it. You've nailed even the the stinky smells and the the sounds and the chaos and the confusion and the beauty and the the, um, exoticism of Morocco. So I take that as a great accolade. (laughs) I think, think though, because you'd done the groundwork on your previous books, you knew what to look for. I think that previous yeah. experience must have definitely helped you, you know. That's true. Um, I also read, I always read very widely around my subject. I do a lot of research before I even start to write for, right. for any book. And um, in this instance, I also read quite widely from Moroccan literature. And so I think that that helped me to um, perhaps have some of those intangibles in yeah. in the back of my mind yeah. um you know distilled down by other other authors fantastic fantastic now i want to talk about uh the french four series because mm-hmm. this yeah. is this is quite remarkable they were they were published mm. and now you're they've been republished uh but i yeah. want to go back to when you your first novel french for love which mm-hmm. as i understand it you had rejections you considered self-publishing and then you heard about Bookature. So tell That's us, right. t- tell us how that yeah. that all came about. Yeah. So I'd 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 done the usual thing that we all relate to, and it's so painful. It, we all go through it, but it's no less painful for that. Um, so I'd written this book. I'd sweated blood over it. Um, I thought it was quite good, uh, but you know, by the time I'd reworked it several times <laughs> over a period of a couple of years. Um, and I'd sent it to agents and to to um, you know the traditional publishing routes and had all the rejections. So I was going to give up, and I'd, I'd I'd I had given up really. Um, and then 
one day I read a, a tiny little article in the publishing press, so the trade press, mm. um, about this new digital publishing company that was starting up for Couture. And mm. it said that they were accepting direct submissions from yes. authors. Mm. So I thought, well, nothing to lose. Slung it in. Heard nothing. Um, and I think they said, you'll, you'll hear back from us within eight weeks or something. You know, I mean, they were, they were overwhelmed. Eight weeks came and went. And I thought, oh, that's it. It's, but I'll just send a tiny little email and say, um, you know, I don't know if you've even read it or what you might think. And I got this wonderful email straight back from Oliver Rhodes, who was the, the founder yes. of the Couture, who said, yes, we've read it. Yes, we're talking about it. Yes, we want it. Um, <sighs> But you have to rewrite it. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, yay! And then I went, oh. <laughs> and it's as we know, it's so hard rewriting things for other people. But you know, they they gave me my break. Um, that was my my starting point. And there were so th you tend to think, okay, the publisher's got it. That's me. That's the beginning of my, you know, stellar career as a, as an author. And of course it isn't. Um, I think Tom Clancy was the author who said it takes 10 years to become an overnight oh, sensation. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, here I am 10 years in. So yeah. <laughs> it's right. It's a lot of work, a lot, a lot of work. So, um, I did pretty much rewrite that book. And it took a lot of rewriting because I was completely new to the process. And there were many times during that editing process, which is such a painful one, I think, especially for debut authors. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, all those doubting voices and, and negative voices in your head start shouting pretty loudly. Um, there were many times when I thought, I, I'm not, I can't do this. I'm, I'm not good enough. I'll just give up. It's, too painful a process, whatever. Anyway, finally, The French for Love was published and it did well. And Bukachur came straight back and said, we want to give you a contract for two more novels. Wow. And so I wrote three, The French for Love, The French for Always and The French for Christmas. Mm. So that that they got me started on my journey. And I'm so grateful to Bukachur for doing that. Um, you know, it was an opportunity that I, I never would have had otherwise, and I definitely would have given up. I would have, wow. yeah, I, because I, there was just no other way in yeah. to the to the publishing industry. Um, if you then fast forward to now, um, the rights for those books, the publishing rights for those books, reverted to me, mm -hmm. and in the meantime, uh, I'm now published by a different publisher, um, and so they were very interested in bringing those books sort of into the fold. But with a bit of hindsight, which is always a very precise science, um, they said, you know, they could probably do a bit of re-editing and, and just sort of bringing them a bit more into line with what I'd gone on to write since. Right. Um, and so this was an opportunity to do that. Um, so that that's what's been done. They have been reissued. It, it was... Um, a slightly bumpy process, I would say, because you do get people who say, well, hang on a minute, the title's changed, the cover's changed, how much has the story changed? Do I want to spend money on buying the new edition? And then, you know, perhaps not being happy that it's changed enough. I mean, we, tr yeah. we tried to make it very clear, and it was one of my conditions right from the beginning, that we have to make this so clear that this is 
this is a book that's been out before. These three have been out before. Um, and we're really hoping to bring them to, to new readers um, rather than existing readers. And, and a few readers would get in touch with me and say, Shall, should I buy these books? And I'd say, no, mm. <laughs> don't yeah. buy these ones. You've already read those ones. And although they were edited, um, nothing major changed in terms of the storyline. It was more just tiny little shifts of emphasis, a, a bit in terms of the historical um, references within the books, because those three were contemporary novels. And I then went on to write dual timeline historical novels. Mm -hmm. And so that that's really all we did. But the, the seeds were there. They just had to be sort of brought on a tiny bit when we reissued those books. Yes, I, I used to work for a publisher and occasionally we would do this. We would reissue yes. something with a new title or and it would be tweaked mm -hmm. or whatever. And it was uh, I looked after the Amazon accounts. And mm -hmm. it, it, if anyone wants to complain, it's gonna be on Amazon that you know they'll throw yeah. you a one star review or whatever. Exactly. So it was I was like, we have to be absolutely clear, yeah. bold at the top of the thing, you know, yeah. let people know, you know, sold a scene yeah. kind of thing. So they're yeah. out now that it's uh, Light Through the Vines, The Season of Dreams and the Recipe for Hope. Those are the new titles. That's right. Yeah. Excellent. Those are the three the three new books. And Recipe the for Hope. Three old books. Yes. <laughs> and Recipe for Hope. As I understand it, uh, you, you're there's a charity thing there of Medicine Sans yeah. Frontières. So you, you're giving 10% mm -hmm. of the royalties to Medicine Sans Frontières. So, yeah. I am. Yeah, that was something that, I mean, it, it comes, it's relevant to the storyline if you read the book. Um, and when I wrote it as the French for Christmas originally, I really wanted to to do something to, to put towards Médecins Sans Frontières, partly because I'd done a lot of my research, um, you know, using their resources, mm -hmm. um, partly because it was Christmas and partly because they just are the most brilliant um, charity and they do such incredible work, whether it's in war zones or after natural disasters or, or you know, just in the, the forgotten corners of the world where people need help and, and medical help. Um, so I pledged 10% of my royalties of the French for Christmas to it. And that's something that I've very much carried on um, now that it's become the recipe for hope. Wonderful. Uh, folks, we'll put a link in the website to that so you can, uh, in, yeah, the, in the great. show notes, that so you can check that out. Now, what I did notice is that between the original recipe for hope 2014, there was a bit of a gap before Sea of Memories in 2018. Mm -hmm. So you switched publishers there, moved from Booker mm -hmm. uh, I believe you were with Lake Union. Is that correct? Um, yes, that's so right. What happened in those years? Was was there a and because there is it? Yeah, I'm glad you're smiling. Uh, <laughs> it's clearly a story uh, because, like you say, this is there is a shift, a slight shift yeah. in the tone of the books and and how they're written. Yeah. Tell, tell us, were they wilderness years? What was happening there? Yes, the short answer, Mark, is that life happened. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I mentioned this time frame of ten years, and during that time. I've managed to keep writing. So I've I've always been writing during that time. But but life happens. Um so I my marriage of 27 years ended. I left France where I'd been living for 7 years and made a new home. Um I found myself facing financial hardship. Um I got a job back in Britain working as a matron in a boarding school because it gave me a roof over my head. Wow. And it meant that I could um, stand on my own two feet, but also still have a bit of time in the holidays to write. So it's that perpetual um, 
you know wrestling match that we have as writers about how do we how do we get started and and getting started is probably the time when you need the most help and support and yet paradoxically it's the time you get the least and you are you have the least financial security and you're having to juggle all sorts of different things so yeah during that time i um I carried on writing. I again, I nearly stopped, and it was a friend of mine who just who said to me, "Whatever you do, keep writing. Doesn't matter how hard it gets." You know, he he saw me at a really low ebb, and he said, "Keep writing." And I thought, "Oh, how can I?" You know, I'm I'm pretty broken, <laughs> and, and life is not going the way you know that I that I had hoped it would. And even though I'd had those three contemporary French novels published, they weren't selling nearly enough for me to live on. Not nowhere near. Um, so I did carry on writing. I then got in touch with the agent who I now have. She'd actually contacted me right back at the beginning when my first three books were published and said, have you signed a contract? And I said, yes, I have. And she went, because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, there was no scope for her to get involved. And I was dealing direct with Bukatur and, and I had a great contract with them. So that made sense. Yeah. But she said to me, come back when you've written your three books and, um, you know, if you if you want an agent then. So I did get back in touch. I said, oh, hello, do you remember me? And luckily she said yes. <laughs> um, and she said, okay, so what have you been writing? And I said, well, I've, I've written this different book. A, a different book and it and it does have a different tone and it and it is you know that my first three books were very much um kind of romantic comedies that you would read on your sun lounger sipping a glass of wine on your holiday um sea of memories is something that that takes a step into a much more serious um genre i suppose you know it's it's much more saga fiction literary fiction um, and it has a very much a historical strand to it as well. So I passed that on to this, to this agent and she said, okay, leave it with me. Then she came back and she said to me, um, I've shown it to this, this publisher called Amazon Publishing. And I'd heard of them, but uh, you know, I, I didn't know all that much about them. And she said, they, they absolutely love it. Um, but they want to know what else you're working on. Well, I was on my knees. I mean, I was working on, uh, you know, running a, a boarding house full of small children who all had the norovirus. That's what I was working on at the time. Oh, blimey. <laughs> Literally. I mean, I won't, I won't go into any graphic details, but it happened. Um, and so, so I said, oh, well, I've got lots of other great ideas and um, I've got this great idea for um, a book set in World War II about the resistance and it's very much set in the area that I that I lived in when I was in France um so at least from that point of view it was familiar and she said oh great okay send me the synopsis so I quickly wrote a synopsis you know blagging it as you go winged it through to her thinking they probably won't like it but at least it'll buy me some time to have a proper think because yes. this has all just caught me you know on the hop and she came back, my agent came back and said, they love them both. They want to give you a two-book contract. <laughs> and I just about picked myself up off the floor. And she said, they're going to pay you in advance. Now, that advance was, you know, pretty, pretty tiny. But to me, that advance meant I could pay the rent 
on a cottage in Scotland for a year and write. I no longer had to be mopping up norovirus <laughs> effluent in a boarding house. So that was my, you know, that was my lifeline. And, and that's when it all changed. Fantastic. And it is extraordinary because since then it's been a book year. Sea of Memories, Beekeeper's mm-hmm. Promise, both of which were 2018, Dressmaker's yeah. Gifts, Skylight Secret, Storyteller of Casablanca, and now The Cypress Maze. So yeah. you are, you know, on an absolute roll. This is it's just wonderful. And the reviews for your books are just mind blowing. So I'd like to go back a, a little bit because you do have this extraordinary backstory because you got a degree in geography. I believe mm-hmm. you've worked in IT as a systems engineer, mm-hmm. then PR mm-hmm. on marketing, then in mm-hmm. the wine industry, mm-hmm. and as a yoga teacher. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, that that's extraordinarily CV, a, bit, a little bit of everything. Has all this gone into your writing in some way or has, yeah, it, has it helped in some it way? Has. Yeah? No, of course it's gone in. <laughs> I think, you know, we, we put everything in. And and that that's one of the bits of advice that I give to anyone who who especially if they're young who wants to be a writer, I say live your life, mm. do you know say yes to everything, get out there and do some wacky things, try some different things. You'll learn a lot about yourself, but more importantly, you'll learn an awful lot about this world and about the other people in it. And for me, that's one of the most um, enriching. Um, sort of strands of, of research, if you like. I mean, I don't even call it research. It's people watching. It's mm. it's just living your life um, and being able to then be in the way of ideas that might pop out to write these books. And and yeah, all sorts of weird and wonderful strands come in. I mean, for example, you know, I wouldn't have met Elsie Carnegie, the lady whose husband had died of motor neuron disease, if I hadn't been out doing a doing a walking. Um, course that day. It was actually a navigation course, but I didn't tell you that because my navigation is still absolutely terrible. So I <laughs> <laughs> didn't learn much. You've got course. a geography degree. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's even more embarrassing. Don't. No one ever lets me forget that. <laughs> I can read a map. I'm just not very good with left and right and directions. <laughs> um, so, yeah, all, I think all of that has gone in. You know, I didn't plan any of that in terms of obviously in terms of a career life happens to us and I think I think you know we can get very stuck in a in a sort of safe cocoon that we try and create for ourselves because it's familiar and and it can be very scary to break out of that Mm. and um so I'd you know I'd built all the usual constructs that we build I was I had a nine to five office job I was bringing up my two sons um, you know, I, I was living my life. I suppose that the first adventurous thing I did was to go to France to, um, you know, pack all that in and go to France and sort of live the dream of doing up a, a big old farmhouse there. And then, and then, of course, everything starts unraveling from there on. So, yeah, you know, life happens and, and you have to fall back on your own resources. But I think as a writer, it's very true that the tougher things get, the more fertile the the compost becomes mm, yes. <laughs> on which stuff gr- can grow uh, creatively. Very, very true. Very true. Yeah. Um, I've heard somewhere that you write first drafts with a pen and a notepad, which is something that <laughs> I do. So uh, yeah. can, can you talk about that? Is that is that because yeah. for me, there's something about that connection between the brain and the pen that I don't get. Definitely. Keyboard, so, yeah, definitely. If, I, I have exactly the same thing. It does not work in the same way when I'm typing on a keyboard. My my brain isn't functioning in the same way 
as it is when I'm physically making letters on a on a page. Um, and I have tried to be a proper writer and just type it in straight away, you know. <laughs> That's what I think a proper writer should be doing. Um, but no, I still have my pads and my pens and, and I transcribe. And I so from trans- that um, process of writing down, scribbling, crossing out, putting arrows and, you know, yep. all of that on the on the physical page. Then when I'm transcribing, there's a whole section of editing going on there. Yes. And then I'll go back and re-edit and 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 you know and obviously then have editorial input from my publisher. But I I do find that it's a, it's quite an important um, part of of my process is editing it in those different ways at those different stages. I'm the same. I'm the same. And you end up with actually a pretty good clean first draft as well because it's it's yes. had that extra phase to it yeah. as well. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. And, uh, proper writers, what do they know? Um, and is it true that you you also have several novels on the go at once? No, I well, I I tend I have quite often I have several ideas. Okay, but I don't I don't write more than one book at a time. I can't. I couldn't. I would get in such a muddle. But um, because of the way that the the, um, the publishing industry is working for me now, quite often I'll be given a two or three book contract. So I have to have scoped out in quite a lot of detail those two or three books in order to be given the contract for them. Um, so I will have done a bit of research and I will have scoped things out in quite a lot of detail and done my sort of initial planning uh, just to make sure, to reassure myself that I think there's a book there and I think I'm capable of writing it. But once I've done that, I will go back and, and very much I'm just focusing on one book at a time. Yeah, yeah. But that yeah. is, I mean, that is kind of that that first stage where you're sounding out an idea, where you're looking at the shape yeah. of it, see if there is enough story fuel there for a whole novel. That is yeah. the, the the first part of the process, isn't it? Yeah, and is definitely. That, is, is that a notebook thing again? And are you assigning different mm-hmm. notebooks for different projects? Is that how you yes. manage it? Oh, yeah. Lots of nice different notebooks. I have um, my honestly, if my sons were listening to this, they'd be in hysterics. I have different colored plastic folders. I like having it all neat and tidy. You know, I'm forever handing them a plastic folder and saying, now these are these are what, you know, whatever your essential documents or your your travel documents for this trip or whatever. And they go, oh, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, I'm quite I'm quite organized in that way. But of course, where it then falls down is it, it is all paper based. So I have piles and piles and mounds of books and pieces of paper. And um, that can all seem quite chaotic, although I sort of know where everything is. I bet you know exactly where everything is. Yeah, I know. I have, I have a similar filing system. Um, <laughs> you teach yoga. My co-presenter, mm-hmm. Mr. D, he, he does yoga as well. Uh, and he's very, we're all very interested in the mindset of authors. Is there anything mm. authors can learn from yoga? Is it something you recommend we, yeah, we should do? Yeah, loads. Because, you know, being an author is, is intrinsically a really unhealthy occupation. Mm. A, we don't have human contact. We shut ourselves away and we spend far too much time in solitary confinement. Um, and B, because of that, we have nobody to sound as a sounding board to sort of sound things off. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, author's mental health is can be a really um, fragile thing. Um, and I also say to people when they're starting out, you're going to have to cultivate 
two things. One is you're going to have to um, cultivate the hide of a rhinoceros so that you can deal with the rejections that you'll get and you can handle getting notes and notes and notes for your edits mm. and you can handle people reviewing your book and saying really quite nasty things that they probably wouldn't say to your face if they were standing opposite you. Mm. Um, so hide of the rhinoceros, but at the same time, to be able to, to write fiction, um, you have to be quite a soft, empathic, um, you know, emotional person, emotionally um, attuned person. Mm. And so those two characteristics can be sort of mutually exclusive in some ways. And yeah. I think that yoga helps to create space, allow you to know yourself better, um, give you tools in your toolkit to pull out when you need them. So when you've had that bad review or, or when you spent too long inside and, and you're going down some rabbit hole into some vortex. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and sometimes for me as well, you know, some of the subjects, the topics that I um research and write about and, and motor neuron disease and assisted dying is a is a very good example of that. You know, they can be really dark yeah. subjects. I found when I was writing the dressmaker's gift where I was doing a lot of research into con Nazi concentration camps um, and, you know, real nitty gritty detail. I had to go, I, I'm lucky I have a hill just behind my house and that's where I go and walk when I need to, um, to breathe. Yeah. And I, I needed to remind myself to breathe at regular intervals. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yoga can help with all of that. You know, it helps with relaxation, but it, it, it also, the third thing being a writer is that you eat a lot of cakes and biscuits. Yes. Uh, you're me. And, you know, that's that's the fuel that we run on. Uh, you know, we are sedentary. Um, and so, yeah, anything that, that helps you move and gets the oxygen to the brain is a good thing. I also swim in the River Tay every morning. It's just um, near, near where I live. And uh, I go and swim there every morning all year round, including January, February. And that gets the oxygen flowing to the brain. You are the second swimming author I've spoken to today. I, I interviewed <laughs> oh, no. uh, I interviewed Graham Hurley uh, this morning, uh -huh. who I think lives in Devon, uh, East Devon, and he'd he'd been for a swim that morning as well. So there's yeah. clearly something in the swimming yeah. as well. It gets the yeah. blood flowing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think yeah, we you know as authors we have to because it is very solitary. We have to find ways of of trying to get that balance mm. and that that healthy um, slant on our lives. Excellent. Now, last of all, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I know that you worked in the wine industry. Uh, yeah. So can you recommend a good wine to go with the Cypress Maze? Oh, well, it has to be something Italian. Right. And um, it probably has to be from Montepulciano because Montepulciano is that beautiful medieval hilltop wine village that that features in the Cypress Maze. It plays a, a very important role at, at one point. So I think, yes, the, the Vino Nobile de Montepulciano would be one that I would highly recommend. Excellent. Excellent it's choice. It's excuse. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, Fiona, this has been absolutely wonderful. Uh, folks, The Cypress Maze and many other wonderful books are available right now. Do If, if you ever want to step into a bright and wonderful world, do check them out. Uh, Fiona, it's been a joy speaking to you and hope to speak to you again soon. Take care. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. Really enjoyed it. Now, Mark, I've got to say, when I hear somebody who's into yoga and biscuits, that sounds like my kind like of that. person. Yeah, I knew you like that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I thought you were going to go off on a whole discussion there about hobnobs and favorite biscuits and the like, but uh, <laughs> that was a re- that was a really interesting. I'm trying to think how many yoga teacher authors we've had on the show. I can't remember many that that said they did that, but mm. I really appreciate what Fiona said about this idea of of that balance that that we all need in our lives. I mean, we were referring to it before the interview, weren't we, about trying to balance with how much writing that we do. But I think it's an incredibly important thing. And I mean, just from my own personal perspective, for me, any kind of practice, whether it's yoga, meditation, going for a walk, reading, Mm. you know, sewing, knitting. My little sister's got into knitting. That's like a massively like beautiful kind of way of just focusing and just doing something. And um, I think we need to all have something like that as writers, because if we don't, it's all a bit too much in our head and a bit intense um, and getting that opportunity to get out to the world or just, you know, do something where you're literally trying to trying to switch off the thinker. Because I think a lot of us have that problem, don't we? I mean, highly creative individuals, the thinkers just go in the whole time, isn't it? And it's like... Mm, yeah, we overthink a lot. And um, I, I think, as, as Fiona said, yoga helps you to know yourself better. Uh, it, like I said, it doesn't have to be yoga, but anything that helps you sort of step outside of yourself and gives you some sort of perspective on your place in the world and helps, you know, just just take a moment, just take a moment to get off the hamster wheel that we're all on. Mm. Um because our mental health is, you know, writers in particular, is very fragile because we are, we're very good at putting ourselves in the feet of, other, you know, the shoes of other people. They can be antagonists, protagonists, what have you. Uh, we're constantly juggling all these thoughts about in our head, often contradictory thoughts. So, yeah, it can it can be a right old mess up there. So well, here's a thought, you, you know, you, you mentioned about getting that distance, getting that perspective. And I was thinking mm-hmm. we kind of do that a lot as writers when we're yeah. putting ourselves in the mind of the character but mm. it's always a some someone else it's a character mm. in our head it's a character inventing or if it's non-fiction it's a it's a person that you're studying and writing about and all that focus is on those mm. in some ways external characters in our life which in some ways um reduces the amount of time we have to get perspective on ourselves as a character in our own life and understanding yeah what we're doing. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, this about me, I, I'm just fascinated by human nature and psychology and life in general and how we show up in the world. And, um, I spend, I spend too much of my time almost in that world about like analyzing why am I doing, why I'm thinking what I'm thinking, why do I do the things I do? Because I'm constantly questioning that. But I wonder if a lot of writers, because they're practicing in this world of not make believe because it's you know i mean fiction and there's reality as well but it's it's whether it limits the amount of time they have to think and work on you know they're getting their own perspective which is why these practices of going and doing something which has nothing to do with writing whatsoever i think can open up that space to stand back and go what do i really want to be writing why am i doing this what's important you know all these big questions that we should all be asking really every day of our lives but at least at new year's eve (laughs) which is when most people think about it but yeah yeah you can get so wrapped up in the actual process of writing that you don't take the time to step back and think about what you're writing about maybe what you could be writing about yeah that's a really good point that's like we're in the factory all the time but we need to sometimes Mm. leave the factory and go for a walk around the fields outside but exactly interesting stuff Yeah. Now, interestingly, Fiona also mentioned about her experiences of of chatting with that mother that lost her 
um, sun to motor neurons disease. And firstly, one thing that really inspired me about that discussion was how she was just open to chatting and meeting people. And we hear this a lot, actually, don't we, with authors where they have these chance meetings and then they develop mm. into a, a lifelong friendship or a core character in their book or an amazing research um, point where they can go to to get information. And I think as well as she mentioned about this importance of writers holding the space which was interesting because I never really thought of it. I mean, that's what coaches typically do. They hold a space when, you know, with a client, you, you create the safe space to talk about things. But I think Fiona really had a strong sense of realizing there was something much bigger going on, not just obviously writing her book, but being, being there to allow this lady to talk about something that she'd never shared with anyone before. Hmm. Um, have, you had, have you had that experience yourself in, in your when Because you've talked to lots of people as you've been, all the time, all the time, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be something monumentally, you know, life-changing or particularly, um, you know, uh, dark or or harrowing. It can be the smallest things. You know, you just have a chat with a taxi driver. You might just pick up a phrase, a turn of phrase, or something like that. Or you just, uh, I was, I was chatting to some. I, I was at a book event the other day, and I was chatting to this guy. Uh, who turned out he'd been in a band. He was telling me all about his band and his life. You always pick up these wonderful little nuggets of uh, of people's lives. And uh, I think the more open you are to that, to sit back and just, first of all, just to instigate the conversation and then to stop and listen. Uh, and it's something actually doing the podcast has really helped me develop because very much as an interviewer, your job is not to get in the way. Uh, you know, you want the, the, the guests to talk as much as they possibly can without you get, you know, tripping them up or anything. And, and I've always found that once you do that, once you let, let them speak about themselves, you discover stuff that you would never have even known about, you know? So, and that's the, that's the case with Fiona in, in, in this one, you know? Uh, so um, yeah, all the time, all the time, that kind of thing. And you, you kind of develop a radar for it. And it's something that when I started out as a writer, I was quite bad at because I was quite self-absorbed and you're kind of, you know, head down, hunched over the page. Don't disturb me. I'm writing something monumentally important. So it ties into what we were talking about earlier, this idea that, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm in the middle of the process. Don't disturb me. But actually look, poking your head up and looking around every now and then it's like, oh, there is a wider world out here. And I'm, you know, I just might learn something from it. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that, that thing that Fiona was talking about, she says, live your life, say yes to everything. And I think there's a there's a lot to be said about that as well. This idea yeah. that uh, I mean, whenever someone said to me, "Do you want to come to this thing? This do? Do you want to talk to this?" More and more, I'm saying, "Actually, yes, I am going to do that because you never know what's going to come out of it." You know, I've I've been to you know book events where three people have turned up, but one of those people, you know, could turn out to be a key collaborator, or you 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 know travel to places you can in in the name of research you know we'll we'll talk about uh you know that in the next episode i've got a big thing about research in the next episode this idea that just saying i'm an author can open all sorts of doors and help you with research and stuff like that it's a bit like a green card isn't it in some ways sort of yeah (laughs) yeah, author or student if you ring someone up i'm a student doing i just wanted to ask oh okay i know everyone wants to help a student but everyone (laughs) wants to help an author because they think oh i could end up in someone's book here or it's a great great story to tell it's funny because there's a 
friend friend that I'm with on Facebook, a chap called Danny Wallace, who wrote a book called well, he wrote a book called Join Me. That's how I connected with him. Yeah, weirdly yeah, enough, yeah. have you ever heard that book? It was such a brilliant book. If you haven't read it, anyway, it's it's a it's a good fun read. But then he wrote the book Yes Man, that then mm. became this you know, big Hollywood movie with Jim Carrey, and. For anyone who hasn't seen that, the premise of it is that he gets told that he has to say yes to absolutely everything. Everything, yeah. And strangely enough, I was reading a book over the summer, Mark, called The Surrender Experiment by Michael Singer. Uh, it's got, kind of got a spiritual you know, angle to it, but it, was a, but it was about a guy that set up, he kind of went off into the woods and built himself a hut, basically, and escaped from the world, but then decided he was just going to say yes to everything. And the story is incredible because the most amazing things happen. He even did things that he didn't want to do. He resisted. Um, and he said, but he's, but he thought, no, my rule is I've got to do this. And the idea was, is that it's not usually about the thing that you do, but it's the thing that follows from the thing that you do that, ha that mm. changes your life. Yeah. 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 yeah that's and this true. particular story is about, you know, he, he did all these crazy things that accumulated into him selling a company for $6.4 billion or something. I mean, this is like a, a guy in a forest who then set up this, did a little project with a couple of um, healthcare people in his local town. That became a bit of software. It got taken by a larger company and became this mass. And then he ended up like merging with Blue Cross, which is like one of the biggest health insurance kind of companies in North America. Anyway, fascinating story if you want to read it. He was also written a really cool book called The Untethered Soul, which I know a lot of our listeners will, will know about. Um, but this sense of opening yourself to life and life's possibilities and seeing what can come, I think it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you're open to everything. But on the other hand, they always there's this other side of people where they say, learn how to say no. Learn how to say no to things because otherwise you become too overwhelmed and it's about it's about a balance of the two isn't it but yeah but obviously i think it's it's a question of taking control of your own destiny isn't it i mean obviously yeah. if you you know you can't be jumping about every time someone says come on let's do this let's do that but you also can't stay inside with your head buried under the desk which is what a lot of writers do you know yeah um uh, particularly when they're starting out and i i think and I'm finding this as I get older as well. I sort of think back to missed opportunities and times that I should have said yes and should have taken that opportunity and didn't because of a kind of a a fear of uh, of of a, of a commitment to something. I had one of those moments when we were talking about this podcast, and I mm. felt like I was standing on the precipice of something. <laughs> and I thought, if we do this, this is. This is we have to do it properly. We have to do it yeah. for real, you know. And it it was a big commitment. So I, I remember that moment very, very distinctly, thinking, "Yeah, we we're going to do this. We have to do this properly. We can't do go off half cocked kind of thing." Um, so yeah, and it it won't happen overnight, you know. I mean, as Fiona said, she uh, she quoted Tom Clancy saying it takes ten years to be an overnight success. Weirdly enough, next February marks ten years since Robot Overlords was published. So. Mm. Um, oh, actually, not next February, uh, 2025. So, yeah, I'm almost I'm coming up to, yeah, because it's 2015. The film came out premiere 2014. So, yeah, I'm sort of 10 years being paid for being writing either screenplays or books or whatever. So I'm, yeah. I'm getting there myself. And it, it does feel like after 10 years, I do feel like I'm 
sort of established. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the weird thing is there's no moment where someone says, congratulations, you've yeah. now entered the club, you've graduated, here's yeah, your ceremony. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this is, this is what part of the mystical uh, journey of being an author and a writer, um, you know, it started with that Joanne Harris, Joanne Harris interview right at the beginning yeah. of the podcast, you know, it's like, you know, don't, you know, don't be an aspiring writer, write, you know, yeah, be a writer. Be a writer yeah. And I also thought today as well, you know, when it's about a belief system that we have whereby, so for example, people in the academy are joining a community of writers and they're just by doing that, they're committing yeah. to being a writer. They're saying, I am a writer, I'm doing this. And even just crossing that threshold and joining, you know, an organization or something else, it's fascinating that mm. it can just be that mindset shift that happens in someone's brain. Um, and I think every author has to go through that, really. I don't think any author that's successful has has never, they, they've all crossed that threshold at some point, but they've had to take that step. No mm. one's said to them, okay, you're now officially in, mm. which is fascinating. Um, talking of which, there was a very interesting part in Fiona's story where Somebody, an agent showed up in her life and was really interested in working with her, which is what everyone dreams of, you know, because everyone thinks, how do I get an agent? But the best way to get an agent is have them come knocking on your door because you've been out there doing mm -hmm. things and, you know, making things happen. But in, in Fiona's case, it was right person, wrong time, wasn't it? Yes. And, you know, this happens more often than you'd think. You know, you, you will, uh, I remember very early on in my career, people would say, this isn't right for us, but you can write send us to the next thing. Now, the next thing might be a year or 18 months or two years away. You know, you, you've, particularly if it's your debut novel or, or it's the first thing you've written, you might have spent so long working on this that the thought of, A, abandoning that first book or at least putting it to one side and then working on something else just on the tiniest sliver of hope that an agent might look at it further down the line, um, it's uh, it's kind of agonising, but... You know, we've spoken to so many authors on this podcast who wrote three, four, five, six, seven books before they were even picked up by an agent. So it's not unusual uh, at all. And uh, so, yeah, it's and, and you do often, you know, the, but then just think of think of the think of the positive aspect is that this weird industry, which can be so closed off to people, someone has opened the door a crack. You know, so much of this industry is not what you know, it's who you know. Well, now you know someone. If that agent says to you, well, I like this, uh, it needs some work, maybe come back and work on it and come back another day, or uh, this isn't right for me, but send me the next thing. Suddenly you've got an in and you're part of the part of this machine, part of this industry. So, you know, accentuate the positive. And, and Fiona uh, knew that. You know, she 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 knew that she, she she had an opportunity there, and you have to sort of grab it with both hands. I think. Yeah, and it goes back to the idea of making it happen because a lot of authors in Fiona's situation would have dismissed the idea of re going back and reconnecting with that agent, and would have mm. told themselves a story of, well, you know, I missed that was that ship has sailed. You know, there's I I, I you know she won't be interested any longer, and the fact that she had the courage. Uh, and just literally, you know, standing on that precipice just went, you know, I'm just going to email her. Just, you know, what have I got to lose? What have exactly. I got to lose? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. changed her life. So it's just all of these things. And we all know these like intuitively, but there's, there's only a small number of people that actually put these things into action. And, 
and those are the people that go on to to enjoy the the fruits of their labor so yeah if you're if you're listening to this and thinking oh this i'm right there at this moment i should make that phone call my inspiration to you today is who who should you be calling who should you be sending that email to do it now um because you know, tomorrow, there might not be an opportunity tomorrow. I once had one of my favorite authors that I really wanted to connect with. And due to things going on in my life, I, I, I hadn't reached out to him. And just, just as I went, right, now's the time. I went online and found out he'd passed away two days earlier. I mean, literally, like I was just couldn't believe it. I thought, and forever, I look back on that and think, oh, if only, if only, if only. But, um, yeah, so that can happen, folks. So so go for it. But if you're interested in listening to more in the extended edition about Fiona, she mentioned about visiting places you're going to write about, which we're going to discuss. But also what happens if your life's not set up to do that? We're going to discuss what alternatives mm. you have. We're also going to talk about what happens when you you get a publisher, but they say, but you've got to rewrite the book. <laughs> and also reversions of rights and reassuring how your novel and the work that you create is your asset. And, you know, we talk about reissuing, changing titles um, and how Fiona did that. So if you're interested in finding out more about that, join us for this week's extended edition. You can do so very easily by pausing this recording, pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and sign up as a patron for a few pennies a month. Uh, and then you get access to all of the great extra content that we have. So, Mark, what is happening in wins this week? I've got an excellent win here. I've got an actual book win here. Uh, so Jane Davis, who was on episode 437 of the podcast, with another author called Gail Eastwood, who's an American. So Jane is British, Gail is an American. They've written this book, Writing Regency England, Writing for Regency England. And you know, Jane specializes in Regency romance. And she mentioned this on the episode. It's episode 437. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out if you're interested in that. Uh, and she mentioned that she was working on this and she sent me a copy. And I've got to say, this is one of the most... It makes me want to write a, a novel set during Regency times because talking about really? research earlier, it is phenomenal. It's got things about dialogue and and and, you know architecture and the history and money and income titles and forms of address and oh marriage and divorce gosh. it's terrific it's, it's so world. handy so um and jane who's been a long time supporter of the podcast as well it's it's amazing that um to see her, her coming out with this so yeah i'll pop a link in the show notes so you can check this out it is such an incredibly useful book and i know because jane sent me a little note and she said um she said uh, it turned into a much much bigger project than we thought i learned a lot including not to do it again so, <laughs> <laughs> well if wow. it's any consolation this is, I, i've just dipped into this and it's absolutely brilliant highly highly recommended so i'll pop a link in the show notes oh, that's so congratulations that i'm sure that's going to inspire a ton of writers as well that want to write in that in that genre absolutely absolutely and uh one great win from rosemary deuce who again has been a long time supporter of the podcast she said i just pressed publish on murder at Sorrel Farm. Uh, she says it's gone live and uh, she's also signed up for Nana Ryan as well. So she's having to make good progress with the sequel. Again, this is a Georgie Sorrel mystery book one, Murder at Sorrel Farm. Amazing cover, really nice cover. Uh, Rosemary Deuce, again, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check that out. Fantastic. 
Well, folks, if you are feeling inspired after today's episode, then please pop over to the Bestseller Experiment website where you can sign up to the newsletter to get all of our future interviews and episodes on email every week with what we've learned and what you can learn too with links to where you can listen to it. Um, also, if you're thinking about maybe you were planning to do NaNoWriMo or maybe you started it and it just didn't quite work out. And I know that happens to a large percentage of people. Uh, the 200 word challenge is, is your option. Just pop along to 200wordchallenge.com and sign up to our challenge, which is, can you write 200 words a day for seven days consecutively, easier than it sounds not. It is hard, but it's all about building this writing habit. And we really encourage you to get into that. So pop along to, to the website to sign up for that free challenge. And also, if you go to the website as well and you sign up to our newsletter, there is also a free download, a special free download, which uh, actually it's a vault of gold, isn't it, Mark? And it's still there. It's like some yeah. of the highlights of some of the best interviews that that we Fantastic. did kind of early on in, in the show with some amazing, amazing best-selling authors. So do pop along to do that. And Mark, whereabouts can people find us uh, out on the interweb? Well, pop along to Facebook. We are our bestseller experiment there. And then if you go to Twitter or Threads or Instagram, we are at bestseller XP. So pop along and say hello. Tell us about your wins, about your writing ups and downs. Or if you pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com, there's a contact tab there. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, if you've been inspired by Fiona or any of the authors that we've spoken to, uh, give us a rating uh, wherever you get your podcasts or maybe even a little review uh, or subscribe. Subscribing really, really helps. So uh, thanks if you do that already. And thanks if you're about to do that now. And thanks to our editors, Dave and JD. Absolutely. And folks, don't forget, I'm writing a nonfiction book. And if you want to oh, join yeah. me and write alongside with me, um, pop along to find out how you can join the Academy, our nonfiction program. Uh, with incredible, incredible million-selling author Kate Harrison. Pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com to learn more. And we should also mention, Mark, because we don't, we don't mention this enough, but we did actually write a book, Back to Reality. And I know yeah. that a lot of new listeners have joined us recently. Um, so if you want to read the book, which was the first year of this podcast, The Blood, Sweat and Tears of How All This Started, as well as have a bit of a laugh because there's a lot of um, Easter eggs hidden in that book for the mm -hmm. podcast listeners as well. Pop along to your favourite bookseller um, and uh, you can get Back to Reality on hardback, uh, sorry, paperback and ebook and audiobook as well. Audio. Indeed. Fantastic. All right, folks. So listen, have a great writing week. Good luck to everyone who's out there working way hard and we can't wait to chat with you again next week. It's a goodbye from Mark 1. And goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.